Hi, this is James Brown, soul brother number one, always fighting. Now I'm fighting for your life. I'm fighting for your life because if you use drugs, you better leave it alone. Drugs are contagious. They're killers. Every drug is a killer. Stay away from drugs. Drugs will take your life away. And if you want to live, stay away from drugs because they are super bad, super bad, super bad, super bad. Super bad, super bad. Oh, by the way, if you were in the checkout line last week and noted the headline of the National Enquirer, which was that Oswald worked for the CIA, we're here to tell you that that piece was based on a document that has been shown to be a forgery. Now, it's quite possible Oswald did work for the CIA, but, you know, if you're going to track that down, you probably shouldn't be relying upon forged documents. We're going to delve into the world, I think, of artificial intelligence, and we should have our artificial intelligence correspondent, Artie Ingram, sign off, perhaps, but I'm not sure there's going to be enough for him to really comment at length about. So, therefore, we're going to leave him off mic. Is that all right with you? Sure, that's fine. Good. And we have not heretofore uh, adopted a method of shouting into the microphone from a distance, but we'll see how this goes. All right, we're going to go back into Mother Jones magazine, title on the cover of Rigged, How Trump Really Won into this article about how robots may take your jobs over. The article is more definitive. It says you will lose your job to a robot and sooner than you think. I want to cut to the chase right away in a little sidebar they had in the article titled, What if our jobs aren't the only things the robots want? Which does, for appropriate reason, remind me of a really bad sci-fi movie of decades ago titled Mars Needs Women. But uh, no, I'm pretty sure the robots are not going to go after women. But to quote, from this sidebar, Elon Musk is a household name. The South African-born billionaire can seemingly pioneer anything, PayPal, Tesla, SpaceX, and maybe the Hyperloop. He is an engineer and a marketer, making him Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak rolled into one. And he's always great for a quote because he's photogenic, telegenic, and technogenic. But there's one technology he's deeply scared of, artificial intelligence. AI is a fundamental risk to the existence of human civilization, warned Musk at a meeting of the nation's governors earlier this year. He said, I have access to the very most cutting-edge AI, and I think people should be really concerned about it. He's also warned that Google is creating, quote, a fleet of artificial intelligence-enhanced robots capable of destroying mankind, unquote. Well, that's something we should look at, don't you think? The piece asks, why are pillars of the tech community so concerned? Consider, if you truly believe that human-level AI is coming soon, and Musk does, it's pretty obvious what comes next, above human-level AI, which we talked about on last week's program. After all, poses the magazine, why should progress stop just because we achieved that arbitrary goal? It won't. Once AI hits the human level, it will develop new improvements all on its own. At its most extreme, this scenario devolves into what futurists call the singularity. 
because computers are fundamentally faster than the human brain, every new increase in AI capability will happen in less and less time, leading very quickly to AI that's fantastically more intelligent than humans. At that point, AI will be as incomprehensible to us as an adult is to a one-year-old. If it decides to do something that harms us, we'll have little chance of fighting back. I don't know if this is scaring you, my dear listener, but it's scaring the hell out of me. The the magazine asks, how would that work? Well, suppose we build a computer that plays chess. Not just any old computer, but a super intelligent AI computer that learns as it plays and gets better and better. What would it do? It would play chess, and its sole motivation would be to improve its chess game. It wouldn't hate humans, but neither would it love humans or feel loyalty to them. It just wouldn't care about all us. It just wouldn't care about us. All it would care about is playing better chess. Very quickly, it could decide that it needed to build a more powerful computer. Very quickly, it could decide that it needed to build a more powerful computer if it wanted to keep improving. So that's what it would do. The entire planet would be nothing except raw material to build more and more computing power, and our chess bot would devour it. So much for the human race. This sounds insane, says the magazine, but... The chess thing isn't just a quirky way of explaining the broader problem, namely that digital superintelligence will inevitably develop a mind of its own. The chess bot wouldn't mind playing chess forever. After all, it's superintelligent, like any other AI. So no matter what we've initially programmed into it, it'll pretty quickly figure out how to alter our programming and formulate its own goals. And while we'll probably never know what those goals are and couldn't understand them if we did, they're pretty likely to include a desire for more and more computing power. The end result for humanity is the same, regardless of whether the goals goals are chess or discovering the mysteries of the universe. This fear has prompted the famous libertarian, Elon Musk, to do the unthinkable, support more government regulation. Musk emphasizes, I'm against overregulation for sure, but man, I think we've got to get that on AI pronto. At first, I didn't like the fact that Musk was so alarmist in what he said, but now actually I'm glad because by being so alarmist, the world is now much more aware of the potential dangers of AI and the fact that we need to have an ongoing discussion of the ethics behind the progress of AI, and so that is actually a very good thing. All right, I'm going to give you this whole article about robots taking our jobs, and can you see if you can uh, talk about it next week's show? You got it, Doug. All right. How many years ago we did a satirical piece about uh, bulletproof backpacks for schools. We also did a satirical piece many years ago where we lampooned AstroTurf groups, which are generally corporate or other financed operations pretending to be grassroots movements, but of course are not. In our satire, we poked fun at People hired to show up at public meetings, which which exist, to portray a certain point of view. We were playing off the NIMBY acronym, not in my backyard, and we called our group YIMBY. Yes, in my backyard, where people would show up at public hearings to advocate for a black smoke belching tire processing plant in their neighborhood. Or perhaps that one that was rendering animal carcasses and foul odors, but they would come forward to say, no, this is good for the economy. We want this. Well, in another example of uh, <laughs> art imitating life, we would note that there actually now are several groups in the Bay Area with the title of Yimbies. 
To quote from the East Bay Times article from Monday, November 13th, under the headline, Yes, Please Build in My Backyard, the subheadline was New Movement, Working with Tech Funding. Working with Tech Funding is a key phrase to get cities to allow more density. Another subheadline is No Housing. Millennial activists ask, Where's my generation going to live? Now, to take apart this article, which we plan to do with a scalpel. Oh, by the way, the East Bay Times, like most publications in the Bay Area, is very high on tech and reports, well, what the tech industry wants to see reported. Sad to note. This rather glowing piece about the political success of the Yimbies, this piece presents very little information on why it is that uh, turning rapid real estate development over to the hands of developers might not be a great idea. It simply quotes from the advocates, for the most part. But uh, the one paragraph that caught my eye out of this piece was this. Yimbies are united by a central idea, a shortage of homes, not an influx of new tech workers and other young people moving to the booming Bay Area, is the main culprit for the pain caused by runaway housing costs, including the displacement of longtime working-class residents. Well, stop right there. If you've ever taken an economics course, even back in high school, you'll note that unless you're in a command economy like the old Soviet Union, the thing that tends to set prices are those two things called supply and demand. Now, of course, that is a bit of an oversimplification. The desire of oligarchs, whether they're in the U.S. or Russia or any place else in the world, is to set the prices they want, not the prices determined by the market. And we'll, we'll cycle back to this when we come to talking about the tech companies because they are the world's greatest monopolists at the present time. If you're, I hope you're puzzled like I am, dear listener, by the phenomenon of people in Silicon Valley who tend to be very touchy-feely and wanting to bring make the world a better place through communal actions, etc., blah, 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 getting behind the world's biggest laissez-faire capitalists, which are the people running the big tech companies. The last thing they want is any competition, not that there's any danger of any being brought to them, but anyway, I digress. The fact of the matter is that housing costs have been rising in the Bay Area for decades because people want to live in the Bay Area. You cannot ignore this when you're factoring in the issue of rising housing prices and the premise, as we just noted, that it is not an influx of new tech workers and other young people moving to the booming Bay Area that is the main culprit is, um, at least in large part, not correct. If the demand for housing goes up from people moving in and the supply is finite, the price will go up. That's very basic economics. Yet in this piece, the very next paragraph quotes Sonia Trous, described as a 35-year-old San Francisco transplant from Philadelphia, who acknowledges there's people moving here every day. And by the way, Ms. Trous is at the forefront, forefront of this three-year-old movement and is running for supervisor. She said, in reference to people moving here every day, I saw it, I was one of them. But she said the message she heard was, you are ruining San Francisco. You're ruining the Bay Area. Go home. But uh, anyway, but I would note that in my opinion, these groups are being financed by the tech giants. Yes, I'm sure they're able to collect money from people of like mind who would like to see more housing so that they can live more affordably. But I think there's a hidden hand moving these chess pieces. To quote from later in the article, the Yimby Party 
whose groups include East Bay for Everyone, Yimby Action, and a legal nonprofit known as Carla, have raised more than $1 million over three years, supported primarily, I'm quoting, supported primarily by Yelp CEO Jeremy Stoppelman and other large employers whose workers can't afford to live near their jobs, according to Sonia Trous. Evidently, it also collects monthly dues from hundreds of members, she said, and receives some funding from developers. Hello? I bet some funding is a lot of funding. That's just a guess on my part, but it's, I think, an educated one. The piece then quotes Yelp's CEO. Mr. Stoppelman is saying, as a large employer myself, I'm like, this is a disaster. I want to grow my business here in San Francisco. We love that we have our headquarters here. It's where we started. But as rents ever escalate, it's a real burden. Yes, Mr. Stoppelman, supply and demand. You bring people in, you raise the demand, prices are going to go up. Yes, one solution might be to develop the bejesus out of the entire Bay Area, build housing everywhere. And in fact, we're witnessing some of this right outside the door of where we're recording this program. Oh, and by the way, if you haven't figured this out yet, I'm not on board with this idea. Having grown up in the East Bay Area and witnessed what happened to the mile after square mile of farmland being converted to houses, I, for one, would like to see some land retained for farming, but alas, due to zoning laws and and the amount of money that is thrown around by developers purchasing politicians, that has not happened. Up till a year ago, One of my former neighbors, where I grew up, in the East Bay, had kept his land as a farm. It was described as the last farm in Fremont and probably was. On this 11 or so acres, corn was grown, tomatoes were grown, lots of produce was grown, and the last fruit stand in this suburban area sold to people driving by seeking fresh produce, and they did a pretty good business. Upon the demise of my neighbor, his Heirs have elected to sell out, and they have done so. And thus it is that four-story apartments are going to go up, and the opportunity to buy fresh produce in your neighborhood is gone. I realize that there's no economic check on this, and unfortunately, that's kind of too bad. As to whether similar tragedies due to the tech industry can be held in check, well, (laughs) we'll have to see. This same pro-development piece in the East Bay Times quoted someone named Laura Clark, described as executive director of Yimby Action, asking, where is my generation going to live? Where are my kids going to live? My entire generation is stunted by this chronic housing shortage that has been brought on by people who can't stand to have apartment buildings in their neighborhoods. And that is an outrage. Well, I would note that um, if you want to move here from Philadelphia or Iowa or Kentucky or wherever, because this is a nice place to live, the Bay Area. Well, be prepared for higher prices. This ain't Lexington, Kentucky. I would have to note, sadly, for these people who are so intent upon, you know, sipping their lattes every morning and enjoying all of what the Bay Area has to offer, that, well, if you can't afford it, you and the tech companies that employ you may need to locate elsewhere. And while... I will agree with you that living in Chowchilla or Turlock or Yuba City may in some respects might not be as nice as living in, say, Sunnyvale or Cupertino. There's a downside to turning the Bay Area into Manhattan. 
In case you haven't noticed, and if you've been there, you did notice, the Bay Area has become quite, quite crowded. Traffic can be at times intolerable. It's hard to predict now when you're going to run into these gigantic traffic jams near gridlock. Putting more people into the Bay Area is going to diminish the quality of life that is experienced there currently. So the choice seems to be, you know, move some of your operations to Bakersfield or ruin the Bay Area. I favor the former option. And by the way, all the foot soldiers that are involved in this Yimby operation are young 30-something or perhaps 20-something techies who seem to regard anyone who might disagree with them as, as Tom Wolfe once described, squashed bugs on the windshield of the pace car of progress. I'm paraphrasing. And to look into that a little further, I suggest you check out the current issue of The New Yorker, article by Tad Friend, titled Why Ageism Never Gets Old. The sub-headline is that prejudice is an ancient habit, but new forces in Silicon Valley, Hollywood, and beyond have restored its youthful vitality. The fact that the tech industry has no use for you if you're over 50 or these days over 40, or in fact, in these days perhaps over 30, is no secret. Unfortunately, we don't have time to go into this article today, although there are some worthy moments of it, except one line in it that caught my attention, which was, in referring to the ageism that plagues Hollywood, the fact that last year California passed a law requiring sites such as IMDB, the movie and TV show database, to remove people's birth dates upon request. To which I just have to pause and say, yes, your legislators at work. We can't seem to tackle global warming, but if you're an actor who wants his birth date removed from the IMDB database, apparently someone will carry water for you and get that legislation enacted. In the four or five minutes we have left, I want to go back to Franklin Ford's book, World Without Mind. He describes how in 1989, the Berlin Wall piled into collective rubble and the internet got born in its modern form. He reviews the fact that back in the 1960s, the Defense Department supplied the grants to start the internet with supposedly the original idea to build a communication system that could withstand a Soviet assault because it was so decentralized. It is part of internet lore that when that no longer made sense, the Pentagon turned over the project to the National Science Foundation, which developed a multi-year plan for privatizing the internet. That succeeded. Four notes that the government didn't just privatize it, it self-consciously decided that it would allow it to grow with hardly any government supervision. The chairman of the FCC said, I want to create an oasis from regulation in the broadband world. This new internet was envisioned as an engine of global commerce and mass communication, and God knows it has proven to be that. Four notes that for a time the internet lived the dream of 1989. The privatization of internet might even be one of capitalism's most glorious successes, though government played a role in it too. But he goes on to note that in the Clinton years, when there was an effort to rein in Microsoft, well, it apparently stopped Microsoft from strangling Google in its crib, which provides at least one historical example of how government regulation of the internet uh, ultimately worked out to our advantage. One thing's for sure, we are not experts on this topic by a long shot, but we're going to keep probing it because, well, it's important. The open question is whether anything really can be done about this. Forward notes that at one point, in all likelihood, no rival to Google will ever be able to match its search results because no challenger will ever be able to match its historical record of searches 
or compilation of the patterns it has uncovered. And indeed, the dominant firms of tech currently are the ones that have amassed the most complete portraits of us. Eric Schmidt of Google once bragged, we know where you are, we know where you've been, we can more or less know what you're thinking about. In his talk at Stanford, Fowler noted that if we give up privacy, such as we have still retained it, we're not getting it back. A lot of folks are not concerned by that. We think you should be. We are. Anyway, if you don't think we're covering this comprehensively enough, feel free to drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com and help direct the conversation. I think, though, in the meantime, I'm going to take a page out of the Donald Trump playbook and evaluate what we've done so far and say, well, you know, I think I'd give it a 10. Anyway, that does it for today's program. You have been listening to Radio Parallax. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. And if you like what you heard and want to hear more of what we've done in the past, and we hope you do, go to our website, radioparallax.com. We've got like 700-plus shows there to listen to. But right now, I've, I've got to go check my Facebook account. We'll see you. I've just seen a face I can't forget the time or place where we just met She's just a girl for me and I want all the world to see we've met mm-hmm. Had it been another day I might have looked the other way And I'd have never been aware But as it is I'll dream of her tonight In the councils of government we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. We should take nothing for granted. Only an alert and knowledgeable citizenry can compel the proper meshing of the huge industrial and military machinery of defense with our peaceful methods and goals so that security and liberty may prosper together. Akin to and largely responsible for the sweeping changes in our industrial military posture has been the technological revolution during recent decades. In this revolution, research has become central it also becomes more formalized, complex, and costly. A steadily increasing share is conducted for, by, or at the direction of the federal government. Today, the solitary inventor, tinkering in his shop, has been overshadowed by task forces of scientists in laboratories and testing fields. In the same fashion, the free university historically the fountainhead of free ideas and scientific discovery, has experienced a revolution in the conduct of research. Partly because of the huge costs involved, a government contract becomes virtually a substitute for intellectual curiosity. For every old blackboard, there are now hundreds of new electronic computers. The prospect of domination of the nation's scholars by federal employment, project allocations, and the power of money is ever-present and is gravely to be regarded. Yet in holding scientific research and discovery in respect, 
as we should, we must also be alert to the equal and opposite danger that public policy could itself become the captive of a scientific, technological elite. It is the task of statesmanship to mold, to balance, and to integrate these and other forces, new and old, within the principles of our democratic system, ever aiming toward the supreme goals of our free society. Another factor in maintaining balance involves the element of time. As we peer into society's future, we, you and I, and our government, must avoid the impulse to live only for today, plundering for our own ease and convenience the precious resources of tomorrow. We cannot mortgage the material assets of our grandchildren without risking the loss also of their political and spiritual heritage. We want democracy to survive for all generations to come, not to become the insolvent phantom of tomorrow. During the long lane of the history yet to be written, America knows that this world of ours, ever growing smaller, must avoid becoming a community of dreadful fear and hate and be instead a proud confederation of mutual trust and respect. Such a confederation must be one of equals. The weakest must come to the conference table with the same confidence as do we, protected as we are by our moral, economic, and military strength. That table, though scarred by many fast frustration, past frustrations, cannot be abandoned for the certainty agony of, of the battlefield. Disarmament with mutual honor and confidence is a continuing imperative. Together we must learn how to compose differences, not with arms, but with intellect and decent purpose. 